This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 20, The Battle of Galgamela. Galgamela as a place name doesn't really mean much to us here at the History of the World podcast, but we are definitely familiar with this area. So let's remind ourselves what happened in the part of the world where this famous battle took place. We are talking about a place that is very closely linked to Mesopotamian life. We first recognise sedentary lifestyles taking place around 8,000 years ago, specialising in dry agriculture, which is the cultivation of crops that require minimal irrigation. The culture is called the Hasuna culture by historians, and we spoke of this culture all the way back in Volume 1, particularly Episode 22. These people lived in close proximity to the Tigris River, and archaeology demonstrates that there seem to be trade links with other Tigris River and Mesopotamian societies existing at the same time. The city of Nineveh is the closest ancient city to the battle site, and its own history is likely to stretch back to the times of the Hasuna culture. Over the course of the next three millenniums, society in the highly fertile lands of southern Mesopotamia flourished. And as such, the dry agricultural lands where Galgamela has been located came under the control of the Sumerians, who were based in the south near the Persian Gulf and the mouths of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Nineveh may well have become an important trade post city due to it being en route to the mineral-rich lands of the Zagros Mountains. When Sargon the Great expanded the Akkadian Empire from southern Mesopotamia, he would stretch the limits of his influence to Nineveh, and the Akkadian language would be inherited by the residents and preserved for many centuries and claimed by many to be the ancestor language of the Assyrian ethnic group of the modern world. The constant competition for the lands of southern Mesopotamia took the focus away from the attractive and strategical city of Nineveh, and this allowed these lands to develop into a powerful kingdom in its own right, associated with the nearby city of Assur to the south. This would be the earliest version of an Assyrian kingdom. During the second millennium, this whole area would come under the influence of the Mitanni kingdom. We would have learned a lot about this period of Assyrian history during the episode on the Assyrian Empire, which was episode 7 of volume 2. The Mitanni's influence would not last long though. Pressure from the Hittites to their west would have allowed the Assyrian people to rise up and take back their lands, and this would usher in a new age of the Assyrian kingdom. The Assyrians would begin to create a huge empire centred around the cities of Nineveh and Assur, and despite the Assyrians coming under pressure from time to time depending on their fortunes, they were always somewhat able to preserve their heartlands, which included the lands around the Tigris River. This area of the world would become a place of conflict towards the end of the 7th century BCE when the Medians and the Babylonians had finally threatened Assyrian heartlands like no other military force had ever done previously. This Medo-Babylonian invasion destroyed the mighty city of Nineveh that had become the envy of many other cities under the glory of the Assyrian king 
Sennacherib, less than a hundred years previous. It's difficult to tell exactly which entity was responsible for the lands around Galgamela after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, as this would have been a borderland between the Babylonian and Median empires, but it may have been the Babylonians who were more prominent with their ease of trade links via the River Tigris. Certainly when the Achaemenids rose to power, the Babylonian king Nabonidas was an Assyrian himself, and Cyrus the Great, the first great imperial Persian king who established the Achaemenid Empire, defeated Nabonidas during the 6th century BCE, and the satrap of Athura, containing the heartlands of the former Assyrian Empire, was established within the new Achaemenid Empire. The dominant language of the Assyrian Empire before its demise was Aramaic, and in this area of the empire it became integrated with the traditional ancient Akkadian language of the region. However, the Achaemenids would look to make Aramaic a standardised language of the empire, so the Assyrians lost a lot of their individual identity and ethnicity, which is understandable under the circumstances. The Assyrians would mount rebellions against the Achaemenid Persians, but they never really amounted to much. However, the Achaemenids did recognise the military ability of Assyrian soldiers, and they were always drafted in as trusted members of the Achaemenid army, which as we already know, was made up of military from the many diverse areas of the vast empire. So this Assyrian area of the Achaemenid Empire, the area where the small village of Galgamela could be found to the east of the Tigris River, was really an agricultural area of the empire, now with no huge cities that had been there before. The village of Galgamela may have acquired its name from the Akkadian word for a camel, Gamalu. The reason why is due to a hill that resembled a camel's hump in close proximity to the village. It was about to become the site of a major confrontation between two of the biggest war machines that the world had ever seen. Achaemenid Persia Now, the format of the battle episodes is to analyse the history of the location and then look at the two nations that met and then look at the two commanders or kings that fronted each nation. However, we looked at all of this when we looked at the Battle of Issus last week. So rather than go into a deep narrative again this week, we'll give a brief synopsis and then look at what happened between the years of 333 BCE and 331 BCE, the dates of the Battle of Issus and the Battle of Galgamela. So the Achaemenids were an Indo-Iranian migration of people who took control of the city of Anshan, creating a kingdom and a ruling dynasty of the city and its surrounding area. When Cyrus the Great became the king of this Persian kingdom of Anshan during the 6th century BCE, he would set about taking control of the lands of other kingdoms and empires, thereby creating an Achaemenid Persian empire, which would include all of the lands of Mesopotamia. It's worth remembering the fact that Cyrus the Great's son, Cambyses II, took control of the Egyptian lands, bringing them into the Achaemenid Persian Empire also. The Egyptians would always have been uneasy members of the empire. When Alexander the Great led his Hellenic League army into Anatolia and the territories of Achaemenid Persia in the year 334 BCE, the Achaemenid Persians could not have believed what was going to happen. The Macedonians and the Hellenic League crossed the Hellespont from Greek lands into Persian lands and immediately met the Persians at the Battle of the Granicus River, in a battle that Alexander's Macedonians won. 
This would trigger a sequence of events which led to Alexander taking control of most of the Anatolian Peninsula and something that the Achaemenid Persians had not experienced previously. They had never watched as a foreign nation took parts of the empire away from them. It was normally the Persians doing all the taking. However, if they could look for an excuse, it might be that many of the societies of Anatolia, and particularly the coastal ones, were more ethnically Greek than other Persian societies, and it might not have been a huge surprise that Alexander was able to take these lands. He should therefore not have as much fortune when trying to push even deeper into Persian territory. However, it was still enough of a concern that the Persians would have to take this threat very seriously indeed. Macedon Macedon developed slightly differently to the other Greek-speaking polis, who we traditionally think of as the ancient Greeks. Macedon was a true monarchy and was viewed as culturally foreign by the other societies of the southern Balkan Peninsula. However, Macedonian resources were important to the economy of the Greek polis and therefore there was always surely an amount of wealth within the kingdom. Macedon certainly didn't play any kind of direct role in any of the early conflicts of ancient Greece and it was often just another territory between Thrace and Thessaly that was on the route between the southern Balkan Peninsula and the Hellespont. However, Macedon became much more important when the Peloponnesian War took place and it could afford to abuse its value to both Athens and Sparta, therefore becoming a valuable ally to have due to its natural resources. Macedon really became a force to be reckoned with under the rule of King Philip II during the 4th century BCE when the weakened southern Balkan polis were in no position to challenge its development. This allowed Philip to coerce neighbouring lands into being part of the Macedonian area of influence, gathering more resources and enabling Philip to create a substantial and well-trained national military. When the time was right, Philip would venture south and subjugate those Greek polis that had dominated the Greek lands for so long. He would set up the Hellenic League in the city of Corinth, where Macedon could pull the resources of the other Greek polis. And this would not be unlike the way that the Persians would construct their own army by pooling the resources and manpower of their empire. After Philip's death, his son Alexander would inherit the kingdom of Macedon and all of its wealth and power. After dealing with some rebellions from within the Hellenic League, Alexander would set about what was originally his father's ambition of invading Persian lands. Darius III Darius was no idiot and he was no stranger to court politics and treachery. He was a worthy satrap in his own right in Armenia before his ascent to the Persian throne, surviving an assassination attempt. He came to the Persian throne in 336 BCE, which was the same year that Alexander came to the Macedonian throne. When Alexander and the Hellenic League crossed the Hellespont, Darius did not see any need to personally deal with the problem, trusting the Anatolian satraps alongside their Greek mercenaries to deal with the invasion. The Persian forces were outsmarted at the Battle of the Granicus, and after becoming aware of Alexander's progress across Anatolia, taking control of city after city, Darius felt compelled to take action personally by leading an army across to the Mediterranean coast to cut off Alexander's Hellenic League army. Darius 
would lie in wait near the Gulf of Alexandretta, and he would wait for Alexander to pass the city of Issus and enter a narrow piece of land between the Gulf and the mountains. Darius would then move in behind Alexander to trap him and his army within the narrow piece of land, cutting off his supply lines and forcing him into a position of fighting his way out of trouble with an army only half the size of Darius's forces. As we found out last week, Alexander would use some incredible strategy to force errors from Darius that would eventually result in Darius's own position being threatened. Darius would flee the battlefield pursued by Hellenic cavalry. Darius himself would escape, but his family, including his mother, two of his wives and his children were taken as hostages by Alexander. So Darius would have to return to Mesopotamia in shame, having been outwitted by the Macedonian king and needing to do something about this invasion or face the end of his reign. Alexander the Great So Alexander was groomed for greatness as a child, earned the respect of his military during his adolescence and invaded Persia soon after his ascent to the throne following the death of his father, Philip II. As we have already covered, Alexander won two significant battles against the odds, firstly at the Battle of the Granicus and then at the Battle of Issus. The victory at Issus was significant for a number of reasons. Firstly, this was the first time that Darius had personally challenged Alexander on the battlefield, and despite being on home soil and having an army twice as big, Alexander defeated him. When Darius fled, the reality of the Macedonian invasion must have really hit home at this point. While they contained Alexander in Anatolia, the Persians would have felt that the heart of the empire was defendable. After losing at Issus, the Persians must have feared for their lands. By claiming victory at Issus, the Levantine coast and a route to Egypt was now open. And this was absolutely crucial to Alexander. By securing the cities of the Levantine coast, the Persian naval fleet would be stranded at sea, leaving the Mediterranean at the mercy of Alexander's forces, vital for shipping supplies from Greece. Once Alexander reached Egypt, he would be able to exploit the resource-rich river society that seemed very ready to slip away from Persian rule and accept Alexander as a liberator as opposed to an invader. Therefore, Alexander would be able to pull on the resources of the Egyptians to fund and feed his army, to prepare for the next phase of the Macedonian invasion. Prelude to the Battle Darius had withdrawn all the way back to Mesopotamia, and this is likely to be because Darius wanted to pull an irresistible army and entice Alexander into stretching his supply lines and engaging in battle in open plain territory, which would suit Darius's larger army. The drawback to this tactic from Darius's perspective is that Alexander would have a large area of influence now, which would include important Levantine cities such as Damascus. Darius had attempted to make a deal with Alexander, trying initially to demand that Alexander release his family after the Battle of Issus, but this soon turned into a desperate attempt to share the lands of the Persian Empire between the Macedonians and the Achaemenids. Alexander was not remotely interested in such a deal. As the Oracle of Amun at the Syroasis in Egypt had told him that he was the son of Zeus, so this would have undoubtedly have kept his large ego sufficiently inflated enough to believe in his own indestructibility. Alexander did have to be careful to wait for support to arrive from back home 
after the Spartans had decided to cause some trouble back in the Balkan Peninsula. But once that was over, Alexander was in a position to advance. However, he needed to assess what Darius was doing, so he was under pressure to not take too much time. At the same time, managing the logistics of moving an army of between 40 and 50,000 members of infantry and cavalry across hundreds of miles of land, keeping them keen and fit for battle when the time came. It is possible to assume that the size of Alexander's army was well maintained despite the campaigns of the Hellenic League over the course of the last three years since crossing the Hellespont. Modern estimates suggest that Alexander's army numbered between 40 and 50,000 and was a mixture of infantry and cavalry. Despite Galgamela referring to the name of a hill near the village, the actual site that Darius decided to lay in wait for Alexander was on open plains, quite different from Issus. Darius did not want to lose the advantage of his greater numbers and also wanted to capitalise on the chariots within his army, which relied on open and flat plains to be at their most effective. When Alexander was aware of Darius's position in Mesopotamia, Alexander decided that he was ready to confront him. Alexander would need to cross both of the rivers of Mesopotamia to reach Galgamela, the first of which was the Euphrates. When a Persian commander called Mazias witnessed Alexander's army bridging the Euphrates, rather than engage with him, he withdrew and scorched the land denying Alexander any opportunity to use the land to feed his army. So Alexander would have to make a long detour to reach the second river's valley, the Tigris. While Alexander was negotiating his detour, Darius would be able to prepare to face the same tactician and tactics that had defeated him at Issus. He knew that Alexander's elite force was his companion cavalry and that Alexander would deploy different aspects of his army in a bid to make an opening for the companion cavalry to exploit. So Darius began to prepare for this by setting up stakes and snares around his position to hinder the cavalry. Contemporary sources might have us believe that Darius had an army of one million. But in reality, it would have been substantially less. However, he would have surely have had Alexander vastly outnumbered. Eventually, Alexander would reach high grounds where he could look down upon the Persian army and survey the scene of the imminent battle. This would have been where Alexander would have drawn up his plans, but Alexander did not seem in any way intimidated by the fact that he was outnumbered. While camping on the hill overlooking the Persians, Alexander is reported to have slept easily, confident on his invincibility. The date of the battle has been determined to be the 1st of October. 331 BCE. Alexander set up a wing of cavalry on the left-hand side of his formation and this would be under the watchful eye of his trusted commander Parmenion. This was similar to his formation at Issus. The Hellenic centre was filled with the Sarissa spear-wielding phalanxes supported by freestanding shield-bearing hoplites, slingers and archers. On the right, Alexander and the companion cavalry, which had provided the killer blow in their own historical battles. The Persians would also set up their cavalry on their flanks. With their larger numbers, they would be attempting to win the flanks, something that they lost control of at Issus, and potentially encircle the entire Hellenic army. The middle of the Persian formation contained their infantry. 
the Persian army would be accompanied by chariots and also thanks to their vast and diverse empire, war elephants were brought in to potentially upset the Hellenic cavalry. The Battle of Galgamela. Both monarchs had gone to great lengths to prepare for this pivotal day. The result of this day would have had very real repercussions for just about everyone in the known world. Both monarchs may have felt confident of victory. Alexander would have felt unbeatable, especially with the mythological aspect of his aura. Darius had picked the battlefield and prepared for Alexander's arrival with a considerably larger force. It may have been around midday when Alexander's army approached Darius's. Alexander would use a tactic that he had used in the past by feinting attacks to try to entice Darius's cavalry to break ranks and advance. Darius seemingly allowed his cavalry to advance and there are very good reasons why we tentatively describe what happened. Firstly, we have to try and read through the lines, especially when the account has been written by someone pro-Macedonian, purely because they would want to paint Alexander in a good light, especially by exaggerating the Persian numbers so that Alexander versus a million Persians sounds incredibly heroic. However, there is a reality about tens of thousands doing battle on these open plains that an incredible amount of sand and dust would have been kicked up into the air, making visual ability incredibly difficult. So no one would have been able to see what was going on, including both Alexander and Darius. So we try to collate a likely sequence of events based on what we know and what we believe was likely. The Persian cavalry attacked from both sides, so not only would Parmenian's left-hand flank come up against attack, but Darius would also attack the opposite side where Alexander and his dangerous companion cavalry were positioned. Then there may have been a Persian cavalry charge through the centre of the Hellenic line that would somehow avoid the Macedonian phalanxes and even according to some reports, reach and raid the Macedonian camp. However, when Darius released the chariots through the middle, it seems that they would become neutralised with projectile attacks from the slingers and archers. The Macedonians were being overrun, but the phalanxes continued to dutifully advance. The chaos caused by the Persians within the Macedonian ranks did not cause Alexander to lose his discipline, and this is often what we have seen with previous battles between the Macedonians and the Persians, where the Persians lost their discipline often due to the companion cavalry and their ability to cause problems in the Persian ranks. The discipline of the Sarissa-wielding tightly-packed Macedonian phalanx advancing through the centre of the battlefield in a slightly oblique formation was something that the Persians struggled to find a response to. With the Persian chariots overwhelmed and the relentless advance of the Macedonian phalanx, Alexander was able to unleash the companion cavalry and cut through the Persian formation. This was the same feint and cavalry attack that won the Battle of the Granicus and the similar surprise cavalry advance that won the Battle of Issus. This time, once again, the companion cavalry created panic among the Persians as they saw Darius's own position threatened again. The Macedonian foot companions also advanced, wielding their spears and screaming out their battle cries. The Persians were now in tatters, and Darius, fearing for his life, fled the battlefield along with many other Persians. Those Persians who had reached and raided the Macedonian camp 
were overwhelmed by the reserves who were at the rear of the Macedonian formation. Alexander and his army were held up for long enough for King Darius III to successfully escape with his life. The result was a decisive victory for Alexander, Macedonia and the Hellenic League. Aftermath Darius would head in the direction of Ectabana, which allowed Alexander the ability to advance south and take the important cities of Babylon, Susa and Persepolis, which was the heart of the Persian Empire. There could really be no coming back from this loss for Darius III. There could be no way that any Persian could have any faith in Darius to defend their empire and they would need him to be gone. The inevitable eventually happened. Darius was murdered and usurped by a man called Bessus. When Alexander caught up with Bessus, he saw an illegitimate ruler, a traitor to his king and a usurper. So Alexander would kill Bessus without ceremony and ensure that his traditional rival, Darius, would receive the ceremonial funeral of a true king. Parmenion was one of Alexander's most trusted commanders and rarely put a foot wrong in all of the Macedonian battles alongside Alexander. He had also served under Alexander's father, King Philip II. However, Alexander became aware of a plot against his own life that involved Parmenion's son, Philotas. Philotas was sentenced to death, but there was no evidence of Parmenion being in any way associated with the plot. Alexander could not afford to find out if Parmenion was going to react badly to the execution of his son. And despite all of the years of loyalty and competence that Parmenion had given to the Macedonian royal family, Alexander ordered his assassination. The Achaemenid Empire of Persia was finished by the time Alexander had killed Bessus and Persia was now under the control of Alexander. However, Alexander's time in charge would not last long and even though he was able to secure the entire remnants of the Persian Empire under his own rule, just eight years after the Battle of Galgamela, Alexander fell ill and died, with some minor suspicion of him being poisoned, but with no real evidence. This would leave a huge question mark over much of the known world. Without the mighty Alexander in control of the Macedonian territories, who would take his place? Even if the Macedonian Empire would be confined to the Balkan Peninsula only, it was likely that the Greek Poles would rebel and seek independence. Conquered lands such as Bactria, Persis, Parthia and Armenia, among many others, would also want to consider their own independence. Even the more welcoming satrapies such as Ionia and Egypt would consider the benefits of independence. There was surely no way that the new Macedonian Empire could be kept together. We shall find out next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode about the Battle of Galgamela. Uh, it's been absolutely uh, a pleasure for me to read about and present the stories of Alexander's escapades across the Persian Empire. It's an absolutely fascinating story about a great military leader and uh, he must have seemed absolutely indestructible to all who came across him. He's incredible and, and we just don't know what more he could have gone on and done had he stayed alive. Um, nonetheless, the story does continue after his death and next week it's going to be quite an astonishing episode the the next period of this story when we go into what happens after the death of alexander the next 40 years 
afterwards are just riddled with stories and intrigue and, and competition. It's like nothing else I think I've written about in the history of this uh, of this podcast um, series. And um, it's going to be probably quite a long episode next week. So I urge you to take a deep breath and uh, get ready for it next week. A very, very complex sequence of events, but fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I hope that you're all continuing to do well during this very strange time in our lives. And, um, you know, isn't it strange? I mean, history has been written all the time and... You know, what we're going through now is certainly going to end up being a future podcast episode, isn't it? Because it is going to be etched into the history, into the fabric of our societal history. And uh, it's going to be unignorable as a consequence, the pure irony of it. Um, But I do hope that you're all well and you're all coping with it just fine. And uh, I hope that I'm playing a small part in your lives by... Um, trying to take you away from the uh, problems of the world for at least half an hour each week Um, and believe me there's plenty of other incredible podcasters out there you just only have to go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website Um, there's a recommended page in there with some fantastic podcast series in there that I highly recommend ones that I've become addicted to in the past Um, and uh, it's just an absolute wealth of learning material in there and I encourage you to go there and find something that entertains you uh, alongside this very podcast that you're listening to right now. I'd like to thank those people who have continued to donate to the podcast even through this difficult time. Many of you have hung in there and continue contributing and I can't thank you enough. Um, Those who do contribute are... Uh, members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati of which we have a new member this week and his name is Charles Murchison so welcome Charles to the History of the World podcast Illuminati I hope that you uh, enjoy some of the rewards that we offer to our patrons and um, I want to um, recognise one of our patrons who has kindly um written in and said that he has a question for the podcast and um that is one of the rewards um if you reach a threshold we allow you to ask a question of the podcast i mentioned it briefly last week one of the members of the history of the world podcast illuminati is mark veldman and he has asked do we know anything about how armies of the ancient world fed themselves while on the march given that most settlements at the time were very small a group of a few thousand people must have been a very serious drain on local resources. Thanks and best regards. Um, I I did um, post a video on the social media pages uh, in relation to uh, Alexander and how he may have um, fed his army on the march. Um, I think um, one thing that um, I can recognize i think looking back so so armies um certainly have been around for over 4000 years like certainly on a mass scale that we are we can be certain of and uh, also we can say that cities have been around on a mass scale uh, for just the same amount of time and the one thing we know about cities is the successful cities turn over a surplus of agriculture as we can um, we can recognize by the the presence of silos um, in certain cities where uh, grain would be stored uh, as a surplus so you know so if there was a bad yield you you could almost certainly uh, rely on the fact that uh, there would be a surplus stored away somewhere and um what we uh, what we can recognise looking at Alexander's army um, and from what people have studied regarding that is that um, most of his army would have carried uh, with them their own supplies. So they would have carried a ration that may have lasted them for a couple of weeks. Um, so their individual rations, and they would have they would have marched with their own 
uh, with their own rations individually. Um, there would have been uh, people who would have accompanied the army who would have been experts at uh, gathering um, from the from the places that they would have been going through. So, like, for example, fruits would have been readily available. So it wasn't all about necessarily grain being taken on the march from uh, wherever they settled. So um, you, could, um, you could often sort of grab fruit on the way. We can be pretty confident that they would have been able to uh, take a good amount of uh, resource with them um, especially when you consider that there would have been um, there would have been animals as well that would have had to have been fed and watered, um, and they would have individually have uh, required much more than your average human being um, in terms of water and and food, uh, whether that be um, oxen or horses or even camels, depending on what terrain. Uh, they would have been traversing or how fast the army would have needed to move. Certainly the one thing when we look at Alexander the Great that's very interesting is the fact that uh, the Persian Empire was so vast and uh, was completely different from one place to another. So what would have worked in one place may not have necessarily worked in another place. And Alexander was an expert city builder, so wherever he went, he would have built a city, and I'm sure that city would have been put to agricultural use for the benefit of his army. And um, when they did eventually um, take Mesopotamia and the heartlands of the Persian Empire and marched out east... Uh, there certainly wasn't the big cities out in the east of the Persian Empire, and it might have been, uh, and 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 we've seen speculation that it might have been that uh, Alexander would have sent um, messengers on ahead um, to assess the opportunities that lied ahead, and then report back and say, uh, logistically, we need to approach it this way, and we need to, um, you know, maybe send an envoy to uh, warn uh, the satraps or the or the town or the city uh, leaders that we're coming and that they must feed us when we arrive, otherwise face the consequences and stuff like that. But even we saw Alexander got it wrong when he was coming back across from the east, across the Gadrosian Desert, um, he completely got it wrong and many of his army... Um, succumbed to um, dehydration and uh, starvation and they didn't make it back to Babylonia so Alexander didn't always get it right logistically and um, it just goes to show you that every march was different because it's, it makes sense doesn't it you can prepare um, you know to go across any kind of terrain but some terrain is harder than others and you've got to judge it and um, you know some marches are longer than others so it really come down to the logistical uh, expertise of those people and uh, how they would feed their army on the on the move it could often help as well if you had maybe um, sea routes so when we saw Alexander win Issus he was quick to take the coastal cities of Tyre and um, and the Levantine city, coastal cities, so that he could um, bring in supplies by boat um, from his own lands, you know, so across the Mediterranean Sea, and he could supply his army through that way as well, not just with um, food, but with manpower, and also maybe with uh, wagons and that kind of thing. We certainly saw that um, the wealth of the land, so those maybe the fig trees or things like that, would have been taken out of the equation by Mosaeus uh, when Alexander crossed the Euphrates River on his approach to Galgamela. Um, he scorched the land, thereby denying Alexander the fertility of the land. So it, everything sort of had to be brought together in one logistical uh, idea and then like the one thing that the the I think the last point I'm going to make is we we don't have to misconceive what's going on 
there was a considerable amount of time. There was two years between Issus and Galgamela. So you didn't have to do everything in five minutes. You didn't have to sort of, you know, go and steal a load, load of food. You could take your time to prepare. You could have a seasonal harvest with, um, you know, with a view to undertaking this campaign. So uh, leaders would not have to just do everything in a hurry. They could prepare over time because... Uh, Darius, who was defending his homeland, would have also appreciated that time to prepare and uh, to build uh, weapons and that kind of thing to to bring um, troops in from various parts of the empire. So uh, every battle, every march, every campaign, I believe, was different. But certainly a lot of the principles may have remained the same in terms of... Um, creating a surplus of materials and uh, and they didn't always get it right you know they prepared for a march and sometimes they did starve fantastic question though uh, mark and um you know that's my uh, very limited knowledge of how they may have done it but um also uh, if you have a question of your own and you you reach the ten dollar threshold um, for the podcast donations, then you can have your question answered at the end of a podcast episode. So, I'd like to say many, many thanks to Mark. Uh, received an email from Mr. Tom Swart, who says um, I'm rather earlier on in the podcast, and I've found great interest in the earlier anthropology that you cover. I personally am looking to become a history teacher and am extremely interested in some of the books you've read for researching early human evolution. Um, If anyone is interested in the material that has been used to create the podcast, uh, there is a bibliography page on the website, the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, and there is also a links page which um, shows some of the internet resources that I've referred to as well so uh, feel free to go along and have a look at those thank you for the message tom also received a smashing uh, message from a man called john bounsgard who uh, is from seattle uh, washington state usa he's put um hi chris my name is john and i've just finished the first volume of your podcast and it was awesome I never really felt like I fully grasped the breadth of time when it came to history, but the way you frame everything is very tangible and very real. I think starting with the earliest humans was a genius place to start, and I'm excited to listen to the next volumes. I think it will broaden my understanding of our modern times and give context to why humans are the way we are. I wish I had understood history this way sooner in my life. I'm a writer, I write mostly sci-fi graphic novels, lots of stuff about robots and aliens. I've started research for a story that uses ancient alien pseudo-theory as a backdrop. However, I want a solid understanding of real history before delving into the made-up stuff. And this is what has led me to your podcast. He goes on to write a bit more, but um, very interesting um, I've not quite had a message like that, I don't think. Um, but I'd be very interested um, to see, um, you know, if uh, if you do get any books published, John, and I'd be happy to put a link on the social media pages. So thanks for the message. Neil Frankel has uh, written in and said, uh, Sir, thank you for your educational series. I find it very enlightening. I've just started and I am only on volume one, series 10. Uh, But my question is this, do we know for sure that Homo sapiens are the only hominids on the planet today? Are Homo sapiens evolving today? Could we find evidence of the next generation of hominids on Earth now? I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of of thinking that we are a a station, a stop-off point in evolution. We're not. We are constantly evolving. We are one step less homo sapiens every day and what is a homo sapiens it's only a label it's only a label for a creature that we are and um, every generation we evolve into something different and uh, if it wasn't for such a globalized world we would find that in the past you know wherever we are on the globe we uh, we diversify 
and uh, the only reason we don't do so these days is because the whole world is globalised and is in contact with one another. So interesting, interesting, and I'm sure we are developing into the next species. However, um, it is all circumstantial. It's all about what goes on in this world uh, that changes who we are. We don't um, evolve on our own. We evolve according to circumstances. So here's the last one, and then I'm going to knock off for the week. So thank you for bearing with me. I do like to read these messages out. I do like to give uh, the listeners their due, um, for especially the patrons, for uh, their donations and the people who have taken the time to written in. So this is the last one uh, from Michael Abels, who's put, Hey Chris, I just finished Volume 2, Episode 12, and can't wait to listen to more. I really think the fact that you don't have a degree in history actually adds to the podcast. I find that most classically educated history podcasts uh, podcasters usually focus a bit too heavily on a certain subject like war or languages, for example, because they are war or language historians, uh, respectively. I think the fact that you don't come from a specific focus allows you to give a balanced telling of history. I know that in my high school world history class, we only spent one week talking about the Stone Ages, so this show really does them better justice. Keep up the great work and best regards. Uh, thank you, Michael. It means a lot to me that you've uh, said those kind words. Well, we've run um, well out of time this week, and thank you so much for bearing with us. And uh, we hope you didn't get too bored at the end there, but like I say, it's really important that we acknowledge those people who support and um, give their best wishes to the podcast so I make no apology however um, that's it for another week next week we're going to find out what happened after Alexander the Great the the real chaos of that next 40 years is not to be missed we're venturing into Hellenistic uh, times so be sure to join me next week. Uh, until next week, uh, stay safe and uh, be good, everyone. Be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.